Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, and Eric, if you don't mind, I'd like to begin this week's podcast with everyone's favourite pastime telling a story in which I mildly embarrass myself. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I'm always up for those. <laughs> I thought you might be. Um, so I was in uh, Jericho, Vermont, uh, the other day. Um, very cute little town, as is just about every little town in Vermont. Uh, I was there to give a talk about the Arctic and polar bears and whatnot at the local mm. library. And because it is a very cute little town, um, uh, Sarah Jean and I figured, oh, let's spend the night here and investigate the little place. Uh, and so we picked this sweet little family-run bed and breakfast you know one of these like old school bmbs where you basically you know you're staying at their house and all of right. that and they cook you a nice breakfast in the morning all very lovely we go there and you know that we're met by this nice guy he's got his little 18 month daughter there it's all very cute and you know hands us the keys says to text if we need anything but they do tend to go to bed early etc 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 so drop our stuff off in the room go to the library i give my talk it's all wonderful and lovely and we come back and Sarah Jean goes got the keys and i go no you've got them and we both look for them and neither of us can find them anywhere we both think the other one's got them and then sarah jane goes oh my god i must have left them in the door when i locked the door when we left and so what do we do like again it's not it's not like a hotel it's 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 these people's houses and they very clearly have gone to bed and so all we can do we like ring on the doorbell highly apologetically the guy comes out in his pjs clearly half awake you know the kind of state <laughs> in which you and i do the podcast most yes leaps, right <laughs> you know and um opens the door we go oh my god we're so sorry but we lost the key and he goes oh what happens and he like and, and sarah jean said something to the effect of i think we left it in the door of the, the room he turns around disappears and as we start to go up the stairs i say what are you going to do when the keys aren't actually in the door mm. Which they weren't, oh, of course. So there we are, like two grown people now, like completely <laughs> freaking out, like emptying our bags on the floor, desperately looking for, for the key. And we're like, all we can do is wake the guy up again. And we were so desperate to not wake the guy up again that we went through every conceivable effort to find the key, by which time, you know, minutes are taking by. Mm-hmm. And the guy's obviously gone back to sleep. Right. And so finally, all we can do is go back downstairs, go out front, <laughs> ring the doorbell, oh wake the guy up again, get him to come out. And yeah, and, you know, he finds a master key and we decided we were not going to leave the room again until it was time for us to actually <laughs> leave. Like we weren't even, you know, going to pop to the kitchen and get a drink or anything. It was, yeah, it was, it was the sad part of it was just, it's just a very simple thing. People lose keys and it's all fine. And we found them the next morning in the mud. It is mud season oh, here in Vermont. Okay. And they had just fallen out of the pocket and just gone in the mud. And so we hadn't heard them and they were right outside the door. It was all very fine, but God, it was embarrassing. <laughs> Lord have mercy. This poor guy and like could not have been more apolo- apologetic. Right. And he was like, no, 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 it happens. Right. But oh, good God. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. As a uh, person who likes to go to bed and not be disturbed uh, once right. I have, uh, I'm, I'm on his side of this uh, situation, although I understand that uh, you did nothing intentionally wrong. I'm glad the keys turned up, uh, you too. know, a, a situation where 
the keys to the, this room in his house are floating around somewhere <laughs> <laughs> right in the town uh, that's that's not a, a great situation so i'm glad they were found and i i like the fact that you are uh, willing you were willing to share this story I, I don't trust or like a person who is unwilling to share their embarrassing stories yeah. you know that, there should be a line uh, it's it's okay to keep some <laughs> things to yourself Right, right. Bodily function stories can be in the well, lockbox. That's well, like, yeah, but on sometimes those are the function. funniest ones. It depends. That's but, true. Yeah, That's but true. And, and also then there are the people who tell every little embarrassing story they have, right. and it becomes kind of attention-seeking and, and, and annoying. But as a baseline, you as a human should have some embarrassing moments and be willing to share them. And, uh, you and know, I, if, if I ever have one, I'll, I'll be sure to tell you. About <laughs> you have one. Yeah. And I think, you know, that was the, that was why I was freaking out because I totally identified with the guy. I mean, it was gone right. nine o'clock. It was like nine Oh five. I mean, oh, every civilized person's fast asleep by then. <laughs> was he wearing, did, did he have a little pointy nightcap? Alas, no. Oh. Well, I'm going to picture him wearing a pointy nightcap anyway. Fair enough. It makes the, and he the came out with better. a little candle, a little candle holder. <laughs> yes, that's right. And his name was Ichabod, yes? That's right. Okay. Yes, exactly. Were you there? <laughs> I may have set the whole thing up. I pulled the keys out of your pocket <laughs> as you left and dropped them in the mud and sat back <laughs> and watched, uh, watched the craziness happen. Ah, uh, yeah. So fun and games. And the people think it's boring in small town Vermont. I tell you, the excitement <laughs> never stops. Right. Talking of excitement, yes. um, we have quite the podcast ahead of us. Um, I will be hitting uh, Eric, that's you, with a new top five challenge and asking you to guess a fight in the latest installment of the fight game. Uh, we will also look ahead to Anthony Joshua's return. We'll pick apart the apparent collapse of talks between Tyson Fury and Alexander Usyk, run through the rest of the week's news, such as it is. Plus, 2022 Trainer of the Year Bob Santos will be joining us for the first time, so that's exciting. Um, but before all of that, let's go metaphorically to Las Vegas and the super middleweight grudge match between David Benavidez and Caleb Plant atop a four-card Showtime pay-per-view. And, and while it was Caleb Plant who started the contest well, and won most of the early rounds, it was Benavides who came on strong down the stretch, battering Plant, especially from round eight onward. Not quite able to pull off the stoppage, but scoring a unanimous decision win by scores of 115-113, 116-112, and 117-111. Uh, Plant drops to 22-2 with 13 KOs, while Benavides remains undefeated at 27-0 with 23 KOs, and afterward, called out Canelo Alvarez. Um, Canelo Benavidez feels like the super middleweight clash that has been inevitable for a while. Eric, did Benavidez advance his cause of securing that matchup? And does he stand a chance of emerging victorious? And is there anything else you'd like to add about Benavidez's performance on Saturday night? So I'll start by notice, noting that you said Plant won most of the early rounds. I, I had him up 3-2 through 5, okay. and and then Benavidez swept the last seven rounds. Okay. So so I ultimately agreed with the 117-111 card, which, uh, what do you know? That was the Steve Weisfeld card. It is nice. uh, therefore definitively the correct <laughs> score. Uh, but yeah, whether you had it 3-3 or maybe 4-2 Plant at the midpoint, certainly this was a close fight for the first half, and then mostly a beatdown for the second half. And... In each of the last four rounds, there was a constant question of whether Benavidez might get the stoppage. And that, that was more or less the script that we envisioned, other than Plant showing tremendous heart and toughness to not get KO'd. We both uh, had said that Plant's boxing skill could help him build a lead, but eventually Benavidez would walk him down. And walk him down he did, despite two significant external issues that favored Plant. One was the size of the ring. 
There was a big ring. Plant had room to move and thus the opportunity to fight his fight as best he could. The other was referee Kenny Bayless. Uh, I hate to make the referee the focus here, but but we have to, to an extent. Uh, we have to acknowledge this. So let, let's do it and get it over with. Uh, for a long time, Kenny Bayless was one of the best referees in the sport. For the last seven or eight years at least, I would say he hasn't been. He's constantly looking for an excuse to step in between the fighters. But he's usually even-handed, at least. On Saturday night, it was two-on-one. Plant could hold as much as he wanted, which was a lot, uh, with no warnings. Benavidez was getting warned for every little thing he did. He got followed into his corner one time to get a lecture. Bayless even warned him to stop talking during the fight, which Mm. uh, another ref on the undercard uh, did this as well. That's not in your job description. Talking yeah. during the fight is not against the rules. Uh, let them fight their way out of clinches. Let them talk if they want to talk. And Bayless called a timeout mid-round to have the doctor look at Plant's cut at a moment when Plant was hurt, and, and he bought him valuable time. Just a really, really shitty night for Kenny Bayless, who, you know, referees can get washed just like fighters can. Yeah. Um, I'm just glad Benavidez overcame this refereeing performance and won and, and it didn't impact the outcome other than maybe costing him a KO. So I'm sorry to derail the analysis, but I, I, I felt it had to be addressed. Um, I'll get back to Benavides. This was exactly what he does. Uh, you'll recall, I compared him to Brandon Figueroa last week. That's what he is. He applies pressure. He's long. He can beat you up inside or outside. He's patient. He doesn't panic. He just keeps coming and he gets stronger as the fight goes along He didn't look remotely tired in the 12th round. He didn't have a mark on his face afterward. He's a beast, and it all translated against his best opponent yet. Excellent win. I would say it's a, you know, this is a time to start thinking about him for the pound for pound list kind of win. Um, So the Canelo question. I don't know. It's all up to Canelo, right? Um, Obviously, Benavidez wants it and would jump at the opportunity. Canelo doesn't duck fighters. You know, he'll take on anyone. So I don't think he'll avoid Benavidez necessarily, but he still may go a different route. Uh, Look, Mm -hmm. he's fighting John Ryder in May, and then he'll probably fight in September. And he's saying he wants a rematch with Bivol. So this comes down to whether someone convinces him that Bivol and light heavyweight is just no good Mm -hmm. for him. And and if so, Benavidez is clearly the best and biggest fight at 168. I think it'll do well on pay-per-view. It could happen. Um, I, I think Benavidez did help his chances here. He established himself as the clear number one contender to Canelo's lineal title at 168. He made the fight bigger. He didn't scare Canelo off, I don't think, because nothing mm. really seems to scare Canelo off based on his history. So it could happen. And if Canelo is going to do it, he's best served doing it ASAP, right? Uh, yeah. Benavidez is going to keep getting better. Canelo is not. If it happens in September, I favor Canelo, but only slightly. If you give me two to one odds on Benavidez, I'm betting him. Hmm. So so I've talked Benavidez and I've talked Bayless. Haven't said <laughs> much about Plant. So let me get your thoughts on him. Did he meet, exceed, or fall short of your expectations? Uh, and, and having lost two out of his last three, albeit against the two big guns in the super middleweight division, what's next for him? You know, it's funny. While they're very, very, very different in just about every way, Caleb Plant right now reminds me a little bit of Deontay Wilder in the neither can beat the top man of the division, or in Plant's case, the top two men, right. but will probably be favored against just about everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be interested to see what Bob Santos has to say when we talk to him in a bit. But 
I'm not sure there was a whole heck of a lot that Plant could have done differently to change the outcome of this contest. Um, you know, you, you talked about it earlier that, you know, most folks, including us, predicted a very late round stoppage. But otherwise, the fight unfolded pretty much the way yep. most of us predicted. Um, Plant scoring points and winning rounds early. And I had him winning more rounds early. Um, I had a very similar card, actually, to Tim Cheatham, who had the first five for Plant and the next seven for Benavides. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, Benavides, you know, picking up steam and, and, and coming on strong down the stretch. Um, I uh, wasn't quite as uh, sort of mad at, at Plan as, as some folks for for the holding. Okay. Um, and, and I think that was largely because that's what I would have told him to do. And I think that's what I said in the preview last week, that, you know, what he needs to do is, is move. And when he can't move, just grab the guy. Yeah. Um, I, you know, yeah, it was, it was incumbent upon Bayless to maybe stop him from doing it quite so much, but to his credit in the end, Benavides was the guy who figured it out and turned it against him. And a lot of the damage that came to plan uh, over the last several rounds of the fight but when he tried to grab hold, Benavides got a hand free and just started yeah. pummeling him with those short punches inside. So Benavides did what, what a fighter should do. Um, you know, it's twice now that we've seen Plant lose in, in very similar circumstances, scoring well early, looking to box and move, gradually losing steam and being somewhat overwhelmed at the end. But I'm not sure whether that means that's like a fundamental flaw in him in terms of stamina or his approach or his makeup, you know, whether it's he expends so much energy boxing in the early rounds that he runs out of it later on, or whether it looks like that just because those losses have come against two opponents who, who frankly are better than him. Yeah. And whose modes of victory happen to be starting slow and coming on strong. Yep. Um, Plant's hardly the first person to have been overwhelmed late by either Canelo or Benavides. Um, so I don't know. Uh, all of that said, I, I do wonder if Redman, you know, assuming Plant sticks with him, might try to make him into a wee bit more of a hybrid fighter. You know, he said on our podcast the other week that Plant is a boxer and he wants him to remain a boxer. He doesn't want to start him, him thinking about himself as a puncher. But maybe there are some opportunities for him to just sit down on his punches a little bit more earlier in fights just to try and discourage his opponents a bit more. Or maybe that's just not going to be a factor against people who are not Benavides and, and Canelo. Um, by the way, I know he's our buddy and I'm biased, but I really liked what Redman did in the corner during this fight, and, and particularly the way he handled the last couple of rounds. Uh, he could have stopped it at any point from mm -hmm. certainly round 10 on, and he would not have been criticized by anybody except probably Caleb Plant for that. But... Although Plant was getting thumped, he was holding on, he was trying to fight back. Um, as Al, I think, alluded to in the commentary, there was always the possibility that some folks had the score, judges had the scorecard more like I did or Tim Cheatham did than you did. And maybe it was worth his while trying to hang on to the end. And um, Bradman knew how much it meant to Plant to finish. And I like the way he very calmly told him before round 11, I'm going to stop this if I don't see more from you. Right. And then before round 12 said, do you want to finish this? And yep. when he got a yes, he's like, all right. And there was no more fuss made of it. I, yep. I thought, I thought that was really good corner work by Breadman actually. And like I said, I know we're biased. We like the guy, but um, I, I thought it was excellent on his part. Yeah, that's, that's a good observation. And I, and I sort of noted something similar. The, the 11th round ended with, Benavidez landing a shot that seemed to hurt plant, like one of his harder flusher punches in the fight. 
and I and then I heard Breadman say, "I'm going to let you finish, or you want to finish, or whatever it was that he, yeah. that he said." And and I said something to uh, Bill and Nigel, who I was who I was watching with. If that punch had landed at the end of the ninth or the tenth, Breadman might have mm. stopped it because there's mm. one more round to go, and it mm. does really mean something to Caleb Plant to lose by decision instead of knockout. Uh, that, that that it was the right call. Now, obviously, if he had started taking a hellacious beating in the twelfth sure. round, I'm sure he would have thrown in the towel. But he wanted to give him that chance to at least finish on his feet, and I think that was worth it for Plant and his reputation. Yeah, and I also want to um, uh, sort of follow up on a point you made that I completely agree with, and I also made a note about, is what is this thing with referees telling fighters not to jaw at each other? Let them yeah. freaking jaw at each other. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't see the problem with it. There right. was quite a lot of that going on between different fighters on, on, the, on the card, and let them do it. Yeah. I, I just don't see what the problem is. And we've, you see it far too often. Referees go, oh, stop the chitter-chatter. No, don't. Right. I mean, just... Tell them yo mama jokes if you want to, if it's going to get them riled up. I don't, yeah. it's just, it's just part of the, it's a fight. Yeah. I I, mean, the, I don't get it. As, as a parent, I kind of understand the instinct because we've, we've all been there where you tell your kids, <laughs> knock it off for no, they're not really doing anything all that bad, but you're just kind of like trying to st- stay in control of the situation and assert some authority and knock it off. And, and then. You know, you think about it and like, eh, eh, they really weren't doing anything. But, right. you know, it's kind of that instinct, like that you want to be in control and you want huh. uh, you, you want a, pro- you know, you want a proper prize fight or whatever. But it is not your place to tell them not to talk to each other. They, right. they can say whatever they want uh, as long as they're fighting within the rules. Right. They're punching each other in the heads, for God's sake. I think a few naughty words are not going to like be, <laughs> right. be the problem. Right. Here. Anyway, um, there were two close contests on what was an excellent undercard and one wipeout. Uh, let's take that wipeout first. As junior middleweight Jesus Ramos dropped Joey Spencer early and bludgeoned him repeatedly uh, in their co-main before Spencer's corner stopped the contest in the seventh. Spencer suffers his first defeat and is now 16-1 and with 10 KOs, while Ramos retains his O and climbs to 20-0 with 16 stoppages. We both picked Ramos to win, but were you surprised at his level of dominance? Yeah, perhaps a bit. Uh, This was the lone uncompetitive fight on the card, and... I thought it would be reasonably competitive, um, mm-hmm. but the bigger surprise, and and you DM'd me about this immediately, yeah. and and uh, talking to Nigel and Bill, the three of us were were already discussing the exact same thing. The big surprise was how much bigger Ramos looked. They looked mm-hmm. two divisions apart, and I thought it showed in the way their punches affected each other, or or didn't. In the case of Spencer's punches, that Ramos right. easily walked through. Not that Spencer would have won if they were the same size, but it might have been a somewhat competitive fight. Uh, but this, on the other hand, this was a wipeout. And, and and good for Spencer's dad for stopping it when he did. Yeah, That was the correct decision in a fight his son could not possibly win. I don't have a whole lot more to say about it. I mean, Ramos mm. is, a, is a very promising prospect. You got to be excited to see where his career goes from here. It was a sweet right hook to the jaw that dropped Spencer. Spencer, he's a good-looking kid who is and can be a good fighter, but that's about it. I, I highly doubt yeah. there's a great fighter lurking in there, although, you know, let's note that he's only 23, and he, he was spared a career-shortening beating here, so we'll see. May, maybe he'll prove me wrong. Um, but I, I want to draw some attention to, you had to love the sportsmanship that these guys showed afterward. Yeah. And, and same with Benavidez Plant, in fact. Yeah. Um, great sportsmanship after the fight. 
we did not see the same sort of lovey-dovey post-fight atmosphere in the preceding battle. <laughs> um, before the Ramos-Spencer Battle of Unbeatens, we watched a matchup of once-beatens, Chris Colbert versus Jose Valenzuela in a lightweight bout after each had suffered the first loss of his pro career. It was Colbert who emerged victorious, despite suffering a first-round knockdown, by scores of 95-94 across the board. The MGM grand crowd hated the decision. Jim Gray hated the decision. I hated the decision, despite it allowing me to win a three-leg parlay bet where I needed a Colbert win. So that tells you just how bad I thought the decision was. Kieran, did you hate the decision as well? So again, I'm a bit of an outlier here. Um, I didn't hate it remotely as much as just about anybody, everybody else. Okay. Um, I, I did have Valenzuela winning, but uh, but I had it close. I had it 95-94 for Valenzuela. Um Steve mentioned afterward that two of the three judges gave the 10th round to Colbert, which right. I thought that Valenzuela clearly won. Um, with, with that little with, rally at the end, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I didn't see how you could give Colbert that round. and um, But that does kind of suggest that through nine, I had it the same as those two guys. Uh, look, Valenzuela's rounds were clearly bigger wins than Colbert's. Um, when he scored with his punches, they were far more visible than when Colbert did. Valenzuela rocked Colbert. Colbert barely seemed to even hurt Valenzuela. Um, even so, there were in my eyes, where Colbert scored in my eyes, was that there were a lot of rounds, I thought, where Valenzuela wasn't doing enough. He was looking for those one or two big, big shots to, mm. to win the round. And meanwhile, Colbert was moving and landing and stepping to one side and doing all of that. Um, that said, this was, notwithstanding the official result, effectively a defeat for Colbert and a win for Valenzuela. Yeah. Um, we asked last week, who could least afford to lose two in a row? And, and I said, Colbert, he got the win officially, but the bloom is most definitely off the rose now, as they say. He did, you know, even though he blocked quite a lot of the punches from those offensive outbursts from Valenzuela, plenty found their mark too. And I think that was the thing that most surprised me about Colbert on Saturday night. He was relatively easy to hit and not just hit, you know, in close, but with fairly leaping lead left hooks um, he did not look like a blue chipper at all, no. Chris Colbert. Um, everyone has a Ken Norton. Unfortunately for Colbert, it's beginning to look like his Ken Norton. It's just about any hungry, aggressive, <laughs> hard-hitting right. fighter. And I'm still not convinced that Valenzuela's all that himself. He, he, he reminds me a little bit of a younger, lighter weight Jaime Munguia who has talent, yes, but whose success, at least initially, is somewhat reliant on his energy and his strength and his power being sufficient to overwhelm opponents. I think that's only going to get him so far. And yet Colbert really struggled with this guy and quite arguably lost to him. Um, that said, as far as the fans are concerned, Valenzuela was the real winner. Mm -hmm. um, he's the one they want to see more of. I don't know what happens for Colbert here. Um I'm not at all sure that 135 pounds is where he wants to be. Right. Um, the good news is that this time he gutted it out um, and kept trying for the for the win, uh, whereas that wasn't the case against Hector Garcia. It seemed as if there were a few times where he was having the conversation with himself again, though, I thought. Um, and maybe had he not folded his tent against Garcia, he might have done against Valenzuela. Um, but I don't know, man. I was really high on Colbert not long ago, and you don't want, we always say this, you don't want to suddenly like drop a guy or dismiss a guy after one loss. Um, but now he's had what could have been two losses and in sort of similar fashion. Yeah. And I, 
I don't know. Maybe I had been overestimating Colbert. Maybe he just had looked good against opposition that just wasn't that great in in hindsight. I I, I don't know. It, it looks like this. He's going backwards. I think. Um, you can only stay away from hard hitting aggressive fighters for so long. So we better figure out a way to deal with them. It, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. But anyway, in the opener. Jesus Ramos' brother, Abel, could not make it two for two for the Ramos family, uh, although he put in a worthy effort against Cody Crowley. Uh, this was real phone booth stuff. Um, Ramos looking to counter Crowley's constantly swarming offense, ultimately not quite able to do enough, as he lost the majority decision by scores of 114-114, 115-113, and 116-112 in a contest that was notable for the use of ringside instant replay, negating an 11th round knockdown call. Afterward, an emotional Crowley who had considered suicide dedicated the win to his father who did commit suicide last year. Eric, there's a lot to discuss in that fight. What stood out to you? Uh, first, I'll say the right guy won. Uh, it, it was close. It was a heck of a yep. fight. Ramos fought his ass off, but I had it 115-113 Crowley. All three scorecards were reasonable. The right guy ultimately got his hand raised. But let's talk about that knockdown call, because it was important. Um, not not so much the fact that they overturned it. All that did was make it a majority decision instead of a split decision. Sure. Um, and by the way, the replay helped them get it right and, and was used fairly quickly and efficiently. It delayed the fight, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds between rounds hmm. 11 and 12. I can live with that. And I also want to say that watching the slow-mo... Wow, Crowley yeah. has some kind of balance to not touch down there, to, to squat that low and, and yeah. stay up. That was impressive. And I don't I don't blame Bobby Hoyle for making that call because that right. was my initial thought too. Yeah, it looked like it. Um, but but Bobby Hoyle calling that knockdown there, it was totally understandable in real time. I, I have zero issues with him making the call. It was very unlucky for Ramos. It, it cost him yeah. his one chance to win the fight. Mm. He... he had buzzed Crowley with a right hand a few seconds earlier, and then he hurt him again and almost knocked him down. And had there not been a knockdown called, this was his window to maybe land a decisive blow. Instead, Crowley got an eight count. He was complaining about the the ruling because he knew Mm -hmm. he hadn't touched down. But in the end, that that mistaken ruling helped him out, gave him that extra time to recuperate. And and basically, that was it. That was Ramos's window. I don't blame anyone. It was just unlucky for him. I had Crowley up seven rounds to two, and then I had Ramos rallying to win the last three rounds. Good showing by Ramos. He should get more TV opportunities off of this, but Crowley remains unbeaten. He's a great story, and he just must be a pain in the ass to fight. He is all over you. Yeah. Uh, His defense isn't very good. He's certainly open for counters, but he has a huge heart. He's relentless. He gets himself in great shape. Really one of those guys who seems to maximize his ability. you know, that said, you, you watch this fight and surely you come away thinking when Cody Crowley steps up and faces a serious yeah. contender, he's going to get taken to school. Um, yeah. But even so, he's a fun TV fighter. This was a great way to open the pay-per-view. These guys are both going to look like hell and feel like hell for a solid week or two, which means uh, we as fans got our money's worth. Yeah. Um, and we as prognosticators, the two of us, uh, we did OK for ourselves uh, with a little help from the judges in the Colbert <laughs> fight. Uh, we each got the correct winner, at least in all four fights, uh, even if not always the correct method of victory in the main event. I said Benavidez KO 10. You said KO 11. We each got one point. We each got two points for Crowley, predicting a unanimous decision when it ended up going the majority route. 
We also said unanimous decision for Jesus Ramos and got one point apiece there. And again, with a tip of the hat, two, three highly questionable scorecards, uh, or in in your view, mildly questionable scorecards, uh, we got the maximum three points for Colbert by unanimous decision. So seven points apiece in total. I retain my one-point lead. It is now 29 points for the defending champ, 28 for the frisky contender. Ah, there you go. All right. Um, Joining us now to give his thoughts on Saturday night's main event and a few other topics is arguably the hottest trainer in the sport right now. He is the 2022 Trainer of the Year, Bob Santos. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, let's start right off with your thoughts on on the Benavidez plant fight that we just watched. I know you were very high on Benavidez coming in. You picked him by late stoppage, uh, as Kieran and I both did as well. He didn't quite get that stoppage, but he came pretty close and and really dominated the second half of the fight. All in all, did he live up to or or even exceed your high expectations in this step-up fight against Plant? You know, I I thought everything that transpired other than the stoppage itself, you know, was going to play out that way. Um, I thought that uh, Plant was able to tie up a lot more than I thought the referee was going to allow him to do. I think he had the, the referee... Uh, you know, either warned the points or or had not done that, he probably would have got the late stoppage. But that being said, I thought it was a tremendous fight. I think both guys' stock went up. Obviously, it, it's always better when you you come out the winner. But uh, I I don't think Caleb Plant did himself any disservice. The heart that he showed um, to me shows that he he's up there with the elite. Um, he can end up winning another world championship. But, uh, you know, when you're talking about the David Morrell Jr., Benavidez, and uh, obviously Canelo, I mean, the elite of the elite, uh, pretty tough hoeing. But, uh, you know, he, he showed tremendous heart. But cer- certainly not a uh, certainly a case where you take nothing away from Benavidez for failing to stop him because of what he was up against, the holding, the movement. He came about as close as he reasonably could have come uh, to getting that stoppage. Uh, yeah, no doubt about it. I like again, uh, you know, I, I really believe that the referee, uh, you know, had gave at least warnings um, it, with the tying up because there was times that it, w- it wasn't even just tying up to a degree. I mean, it was it was full blown, you know, just <laughs> you, you, grappling the guy. So yeah. I think outside of that, he would have got the stoppage. But uh, you know, I give uh, uh, Caleb credit; he did what he had to do. If you're gonna, if the referee's gonna allow you to get away with that then you're going to take what they give you like in all sports. So, you know, he did what he had to do and uh, he made it the 12 rounds. He showed tremendous heart, tremendous courage, but uh, had, had had the referee not done that, I'm, I'm pretty confident that he would have got the stoppage. We were just talking about, about both fighters and I felt, I wasn't sure that there was much different that Caleb Plant could have done. Um, if you were training him, would you have told him to do anything different? And how close would you have come to stopping the fight? You know, uh, sitting there ringside, there was a lot of points, you know, where I was thinking to myself, you know, hey, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I probably would have been very, very close to stopping the fight. Um, I, it, it's very difficult when a guy is that much more of a devastating puncher than you. And 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 again, you know, I lived with uh, with uh, Benavides, so I know him fairly well. Right. Mm-hmm. I was in camp with him. I lived with him. I worked with him for a time. So I know him fairly well. And he's a much better boxer than people think. You know, mm-hmm. he's really I, I, I used to like to say he's kind of a savant in the ring. He He's very good at pairing punches on the inside, turning punches over little uh, stickers and, and, and things of that nature that people don't see. And, 
and uh, almost like an old school fighter where he could parry punches and, you know, and he's walking you down and does a lot of little tricky things in there. So uh, I think it would have been, I just think Caleb Plant was just out. And I know Caleb Plant fairly well too, because obviously with Louis Cubas Jr., who I work with, you know, uh, advise both fighters. And I seen him early on in most of his uh, career with uh, Mario Barrios on the same cards together. I I, I don't know what, what more he really could have done to win that fight, you know? So my hat's off to him just to go the 12 rounds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned David Morrell, uh, you're his co-trainer alongside Ronnie Shields. Um, based on what you saw on Saturday night, how, how do you feel he matches up with, with Benavidez? What are, what are some of the strengths that Morrell would bring to that matchup? Well, obviously, uh, David Morrell is a tremendous athlete. Uh, you know, the job that Ronnie Shields is doing with him, uh, you know, second to none he's coming along really really well um he's great length obviously he's a south ball he's a great puncher um you know a lot of people don't realize with him he's got tremendously big yeah i got a couple heavyweights that i work with and his hands are almost big oh yeah (laughs) in a great hand speed great foot speed his you know i like to say about him i tell people all the time with dave morale jr um, if he wasn't a professional prize fighter, he'd probably be playing center field for the New York Yankees or safety in the NFL. He's just a tremendous, tremendous athlete. So uh, I think uh, we match up very, very well with Benavides. And uh, obviously, uh, I know him both well. Uh, obviously, I'm working with uh, Morale at this point in time. And and I like our guy to come out victorious in that fight just from the standpoint that he's a southpaw. He's got faster feet. I think the hand speed is pretty comparable. We got much more length than he does. And punching power, we're going to be right there with him. So I think it's going to come down to his feet. And uh, Morales got superior feet to uh, Benavides. Plus, he's got the punching power, unlike Caleb Plant in, in those areas, to keep you honest. Uh, is is there any possibility that uh, that that you're going to get that fight uh, soon? Obviously, Benavidez has made it clear Canelo is his first choice, as Canelo is everyone's first choice. If he doesn't get Canelo, you think there's a decent chance we see Benavidez Morel this year? Sure, because I know Benavidez, he's willing to take on all challengers, and I know Morel, he's willing to take on all challengers. You you look at a guy in his third pro fight, and he fights a guy a uh, twenty something and zero. Um, so that, that tells you everything you need to know about David Morrell Jr. Look what he just did in his last fight. You know, uh, when we fought that tough, tough Kakistanian, he had a, a plethora of amateur fights and, uh, you know, so he, he ain't going to duck any challenges and then both guys are, are that way. And I'm sure Showtime would be able to make that happen with Al Heyman and Louis DeCubis Jr. I don't see why it wouldn't be able to be able. <laughs> Okay. So Benavidez Plant was one fight we've all been looking forward to. Another one we're looking forward to, Javante Davis and Ryan Garcia. You went up against Javante Davis with Hector Garcia recently. What did you see in that fight that maybe informs how you feel Tank and Ryan Garcia might go? You know, I know Tank fairly well. Um, Matter of fact, I have a couple of my fighters that are actually helping him in this camp to get ready for Ryan Garcia. So I have Kevin Brown. Uh, you know, tremendous uh, amateur pedigree uh, out of that ca- uh, Cuban program. Uh, we have the Byrantis twins that's out of our gym, and they're helping him get ready for this fight. Uh, so, you know, and obviously I know Joe Goosen because I worked under Joe Goosen for a long time, who's getting ready, uh, getting Ryan Garcia ready. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with what styles are probably going to be coming into play in that fight. I've said it, and I'll say it again. I, I like uh, 
uh, Gervonta Davis. I, I think he's been in the bigger fights. I think he's been on that stage. And until you've really been on that stage, as Hector uh -huh. Garcia found out, you know, it's one thing, yeah, you fought for a world title, yeah, but when you you go in there and there's 20,000 people and, and, and you're at that point, and I've talked to Floyd Mayweather about that before too, and many, many top fighters, when you're at that point and things start going through your head, you're in the eighth round, hey, I'm in a dead heat with this guy, and you're realizing, hey, man, I don't care what anybody says, these things and processes are going through guys' heads. Hey, I'm three rounds away from changing my entire life. You start losing focus on in some of those areas is, instead of the task at hand is where you can get into trouble. But that's where it plays more of a significant role than any other, any other fight, right? Because you know this is the life-changing fight. And so you got to deal with those emotions and keep those things in control. And I think obviously Tank's been on that stage. Ryan has not yet been on that stage to that degree. And uh, I think experience and uh, I, I just think uh, – Tank's going to end up getting the job done at some point with him. Tank's a super smart fighter too, isn't he? Everyone focuses on his power, but he's really clever in the ring, isn't he? You know, in the Hector Garcia fight, if you look at that fight, um, it was kind of, uh, you know, the, the tide had changed. The momentum had shifted when that fight had broken out. I All, all credit to Gervonta Davis. But when the fight broke out, you know, you never see, unless something comes into the ring, you never see them stop the fight. But it was a momentum changer. But presence of mind, you know, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm about 90% sure it was Gervonta Davis who had the wherewithal, the presence of mind when that fight broke out because he was getting a little gassed. If you look at the mm -hmm. seventh round, he says, hey, man, what round is it to Calvin? He says, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. He says, oh, it, it's the seventh. He says, it's the seventh. He's getting a little gassed. And so when that fight broke out, I'm almost positive it was him that went to the referee and said, hey, you know, look what's going on here. And subsequent got himself like a little bit of a timeout. Right. But the wherewithal to be in the middle of the fight, you know, it's almost like Michael Jordan knowing how to work the referees and those kinds of things. Think about the confidence you have to have, the wherewithal. You know, people could say, oh, well, that's kind of cheating. No, that's presence of mind. And, and so he got that little bit of a break and it was a huge momentum shift. You give a, a puncher like that, a little bit of a, you know, a timeout, uh, so to speak, in the middle of a round. And we all seen what happened. One big shot. Boom. Now, that being said, like I said, I'm not saying that he wasn't going to be uh, capable of knocking Hector out in the 11th or the 12th round. Obviously, he could change that fight on a dime with one punch. I've watched him knock out junior middleweights and sparring with six. So he could turn it on a dime quickly. All right. Enough about all these boxers. Let's talk about you, Bob. Uh, you, 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 you've been involved in boxing for a long time. Uh, how did you first get started as a trainer? And, and when did you know that this was your calling? You know, uh, I'm very fortunate that, uh, you know, my cousin, Louis Molina, fought in the 1956 Olympics. And, uh, you know, um, so uh, it was always a source of pride in our family, you know, where my father was big in athletics uh, uh, of all sorts, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, boxing, obviously. Um, so I knew that, you know, I always wanted to be involved in sports at, at some level, whether it was basketball, football or baseball. But uh, yeah, I was kind of drawn to uh, boxing. And like I said, I was fortunate that my cousin fought in the 1956 Olympics and uh, and some of the boxing gyms in San Jose where I grew up and, and, and where we grew up. We even had, you know, our elementary school had boxing teams, if you could believe it back then. Wow. So, wow. 
Um, you know, so just fortunate to get and work my way through there and kind of, a, you know, an internships and things of that nature. I was a sparring partner with Carlos Cruzat, who ended up being a, the only cruiserweight champ of the world from uh, Chile. And so I was able to just pick up things here and there and worked with Eddie Devon, who was an old, old school trainer from Philadelphia and made his way to uh, San Jose, California. And used to be a sparring partner with my cousin, Louis Molina. And you know how that kind of works from from there and working with the old time guys and then was fortunate to work under Joe Goosen and work alongside uh, Ronnie Shields and some of the greats. And I was fortunate to work with uh, Emmanuel Stewart with uh, Jose Salaya that he had for a time and to be in those kind of camps. So, you know, just really, really blessed uh, from the good Lord to have those type of opportunities. And, and here we are today. Wow. Uh, so I, I think I know now what the boxing version of six degrees of Kevin Bacon is. It's six <laughs> degrees of Bob Santos. You know, everybody, You've, you have some connection to everyone. It seems like. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious. You, you mentioned some of those exceptional mentors that, that you had Goosen, Emmanuel Stewart, Ronnie Shields, Freddie Roach, all these guys you, you've worked with. How important is it for a trainer to spend time around great trainers to essentially serve an apprenticeship with, with guys like that in order to eventually become elite themselves? You know, I, you know, I, I don't know that there's one cookie cutter for, for everybody. But for me, I was very fortunate to be around those guys. I, I mean, it can't hurt to obviously be able to pick the mind of, of Emmanuel Stewart and be able to mm -hmm. call him up, you know, after a day of training. Hey, Manny, what did you see here? Or Joe Goosen, or, you know, at trainings done and have dinner with them and, and talk about different things. So obviously that's going to be a huge, huge plus. I'm sure there's some guys that are going to be great coaches that didn't have to go down that route, but I'm sure glad that I did. And I think overall it makes a huge, huge difference it's to me as a coach, it's like amateur pedigree, right? There, sure, there's guys that win world championships and only had say 40 amateur fights and and weren't in the Olympics. But boy, it sure helps if you can have those 400 amateur fights, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm blessed and I'm thankful that, that I had those opportunities for sure. Mm -hmm. So anyone who's been ringside or around boxing over the last 15, 20 years or so has seen you and knows you and. You've always struck me as somebody who was, you never looked for the limelight, but boy, the limelight has sure found you lately. <laughs> and I'm wondering how that's been for you, that transformation over the last couple of years where now boxing fans know who you are and you're getting a lot of attention and a lot of praise for your work. You know, it's it's surreal, but, uh, you know, I always say man has plans, God's the master planner. And you're right about that, uh, you know. Uh, if you had told me last year we'd be uh, having this conversation where I would have been sports <laughs> straight at a ringmate, I would have said, oh, you're crazy. You know, I've been doing this 31 years and it, and it never happened to that point. But again, you know, unfortunately, we're in a society nowadays that, you know, uh, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Right. So, you know, I'm not never been one of those guys to say, hey, look at me and, mm -hmm. and, so, on and so forth. I didn't have an Instagram or a Twitter or whatever these ca cases may be. And. For whatever reason, everything just broke through at the right time, and 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 here we are now. But there's a lot of great trainers out there, like myself, putting in their time, and sometimes you just don't get that shine that uh, maybe you deserve. But mm. it is what it is. Hey, good guys can finish first sometimes, right? There you go. Thirty-one years later, <laughs> right, right, very, very patient, good guys <laughs> in this right. case. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> hey, Bob, thank you so much. We're really glad that you joined us, and uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again in the future. It'd be great to pick your brains about a whole bunch of stuff in the future. 
anytime. And God bless you guys. And thank you for having me. It's, it's been great. Thank Thanks you Bob. so much, Bob. Thanks very much there to Bob. That's great to uh, to have him on the podcast for the mm -hmm. first time. Really enjoyed that. Um, okay, we have just a few other fights from this past weekend to touch on. Uh, in Manchester, England, airing on Sky Sports in the UK and Pro Box TV in the US and elsewhere, Lawrence Okoli retained a cruiserweight strap with a dominant but honestly not tremendously impressive unanimous decision win over a game but overmatched New Zealander David Light. On DAZN from Guadalajara, Mexico, Jose Chon Cepeda dominated Niraj Goyat over 10 super lightweight rounds. And in Fresno, California, on ESPN and ESPN+, Plus, Jose Ramirez stopped Richard Comey in the 11th round of a title eliminator. Uh, Eric, anything to comment on from that bunch? Yeah, I'll focus on Ramirez-Comey, which was a really solid fight. Uh... A perfect Sunday morning chaser for the very strong Saturday night <laughs> pay-per-view card. I mean, you would have to stay up till about three in the morning to watch it all on Saturday night. But um, this went according to script, you know, competitive fight. Ramirez more or less in charge, but Comey having his moments, landing clean right hands. But ultimately, you kind of knew all along there could only be one winner. Ramirez is just that little bit better and more versatile and more disciplined. And Comey, he's 36 years old. It just... Mm pretty clear he's never going to get over that hump. Uh, his last three fights, he's 0-2-1 against Loma, Ramirez, and Sniper Pedraza. Uh, he's the nearly man. Uh, except against Teofimo Lopez, there was nothing nearly about that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but the window seems like it's got to be closing now. And uh, Ramirez, the way I see it, he's only 30. He's in his prime. He has some options. But basically, there are two fights at 140 that are of interest for him. One is Regis Progre, the fight he walked away from recently. The question, does he just not want it? Which would be somewhat understandable with Progre's talent. Maybe Ramirez feels that's the guy that he should avoid. Uh, or, or maybe he really did just object to the purse split. That's what he said. And he would negotiate again. It's a great fight if it happens. If not, the other guy you mentioned who won this weekend, Chon Zepeda, I think it's time for that rematch. Uh, I thought Zapata deserved the decision when they fought in 2019, but Ramirez got it. I'd still love to see a rematch. Zapata now has one win under his belt after his tough loss to Progre. So bring on either of those, Ramirez versus Progre or Ramirez Zapata too. Those are the two meaningful fights for him. Mm, indeed. Um, all right. A couple of fights next weekend to preview. I think we can skip over Roy Jones versus Anthony Pettis. Um, yes. Let's just pretend I didn't even mention it. Actually. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, elsewhere on ESPN Plus, the rapidly rising Robesi Ramirez takes on veteran Isaac Dogbay in an intriguing crossroads bout at featherweight. But the unquestioned big fight of next weekend is the return of Anthony Joshua, who takes on Jermaine Franklin in his first fight back since losing two in a row to Alexander Usyk. Eric, we've been pretty down on Franklin after he put in a string of disappointing performances on Showtime, but he showed more spirit than we're used to in a points loss to Dillian White last time out. Does he possibly have enough to upset an AJ who's looking to find his way back? Uh, and anything to say about Ramirez Dog Bay while you're at it? I actually have more to say about Ramirez Dog Bay than AJ ah, Franklin, very I think. Good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> or if, if not more to say, at, at least it's a fight I'm more intrigued by. Uh, Ramirez sure. Dog Bay is a potentially great matchup. Ramirez was this mega-hyped prospect who lost his pro debut. That just doesn't happen, like, ever. Mm. Uh, so his whole pro career, three and a half years now, has been dedicated to rebuilding, trying to prove that there was reason for the hype, trying to shake off the stink of that one belly flop. Mm. And he's getting there. He, he went from 0-1 to 11-1, and, and his last four wins, 
the opponents were a combined 78 and three. Uh, now he takes on his toughest test yet, I think, in Dog Bay, who got kind of written off after two straight losses to Emmanuel Navarrete, but has gone on to win four in a row, some of them very close, uh, one split decision and two majority decisions among those wins. But against quality opposition, this is absolutely the definition of a crossroads fight. One guy takes a step into featherweight title contention. The other possibly takes a big step back. I really love this fight. Um, now I'll talk Joshua Franklin. <laughs> Meh. Meh. It's fine. Um, as we said when it was announced, this is the right move for AJ to take a fight that he can't really lose unless he just flat out doesn't have it anymore, which I don't believe to be the case. Franklin's the perfect opponent in that he has a nice looking record. He earned respect in his last fight. Nobody's like, oh, my God, why is AJ fighting that bum? You know, he's no bum, but he can't beat Anthony Joshua unless AJ's confidence is just so far gone that he freezes up in the ring. Most likely, this is a comfortable win for Joshua. Probably he gets a stoppage win. He gets to show how his partnership with new trainer Derek James is working without having to do so against a pain-in-the-ass mm-hmm. puzzle box like Alexander Usyk. Uh, so good matchmaking in a sense, but AJ is about a 10-to-1 favorite. I don't expect anything too competitive. It's fine for what it is, but I'm much more interested in Ramirez Dog Bay, honestly. Yeah. No, I was just thinking. Like, I think of a couple of... Uh guys who lost their first pro fight and went on to have very good careers, Hall of Fame careers, like Rafa Marquez, Bernard right. Hopkins. Yes. Bernard there... Hopkins lost his first fight and then went away for two years. So right. there, there has been there. There is, but none, nobody with who came in with a ton of hype and lost their first <laughs> fight like Ramirez did. In a, you know, uh, that, that was totally unique. Um, but I mean, I think we were all ready to just write him off after one fight and yeah. say, well, I guess he was a fraud and uh, he's, he's turned it around nicely. Mm, indeed. All right. All right. Let's move on, shall we, to mm-hmm. the big event. Of the week. <laughs> Everybody's favorite segment. Um, it's the fight game. And look, after an absurdly late Saturday night, I'm in no great position to come up with good clues. You'll probably be in no great condition <laughs> to come up with good answers. So it'll be what it'll be. Talk about hyping up the segment. Here you go. Wow. OK. All right. Quite the quite the undersell. Every every. <laughs> Another another reason why we never got that ESPN uh, ESPN show. <laughs> right. Oh, this is gonna suck. All right. <laughs> Are you ready? Do you have your pen and paper ready? I do sir? indeed. I'm ready to write down some clues. Uh, fire away. Okay. The top line of this 1982 championship fight suggests it was a routine win for the experienced champion over the late replacement young challenger. But in fact. He dig beneath the results. Uh, the champion found himself in a surprisingly tough battle before he emerged with a KO victory. Hmm. So, can you hear it again? Um, I think I've got it. Read it one more time. Yes, please. All right. So, the top line of this 1982 championship fight suggests it was a routine win for the experienced champion over the late replacement young challenger. Uh, but in fact, the champion found himself in a surprisingly tough battle before emerging with a KO victory. You know, I'm glad I had you read it twice, not because anything changed, but because it gave me more time to process and think. And my <laughs> my first instinct, I was going, I had a fight in mind. And then by the time you were almost done it the second time, I have a fight in mind that I think is more likely the correct okay. answer. I don't okay. know if either of these was 1982 exactly, but they were somewhere okay. right around there. So uh, I'll... Uh, do I, do I reveal what my non-guess is for entertainment purposes? 
but then if it had happened, no, I, I, I get one guess and then I have to move on and save the other one. So my guess is, is that it? Jesus, twice in a row. <laughs> I think you gave, you know what? In uh, in retrospect, and now that that has been bleeped uh, for all the okay. listeners, uh, and uh, they don't know what I just said. But uh, in retrospect, if I were advising you, if I were in your corner on this one before you gave it out, I would have said to leave the year out of it. That made it a little too uh, easy to focus in. I think I, at least on the first yeah. clue, second or third clue, work right. here in there. But that that made me focus a little too much. The the other fight that I was considering. I guess I won't bleep. We won't bleep this one. This will be in there. Okay. I was also considering Larry Holmes and Tim Witherspoon. Uh, mm. I don't know if he was a late replacement Witherspoon, but I know mm. it was veteran champ, young challenger, tough fight. I don't can't recall if it ended in a KO or decision. Might have been a decision, actually. And it probably wasn't quite 1982. But uh, go ahead and read the rest of the clues, uh, and, uh, and then we will, shall uh, continue to discuss. Yeah, I will say when I thought of this fight, I thought this fight, once you think about it, is an obvious one. So I tried to make the first few not too obvious, although I obviously failed. <laughs> I think um, you, you gave me just a little too much in the first A little one. bit too yeah. much. All right. And then the fourth and the fifth ones are super easy. Um, number two, the challenger entered the contest uh, 13 and 0, but afterward he went on an 18 fight win streak and would win the same title that he uh, failed to capture in this fight two and a half years and seven fights later. That was number two. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number three, the winner and loser are both in the Hall of Fame, inducted in 1991 and 2004, respectively. And then four and five are the the layups. Uh, The fight was for a featherweight title. The loser would go on to take uh, not only this title, but one at super featherweight, and would also challenge Pernell Whitaker for the lightweight crown. Mm And if somehow you still don't have that, <laughs> clue number five is the winner would never fight again. He died in a car accident three weeks later, aged just 23, which still blows me away, by oh, yeah. the way. Crazy. And so for those who do not have it, the answer, Eric, please. Uh, Salvador Sanchez over young Azuma Nelson. Was it KO 15? KO 15. Okay. At Madison Square Garden in front of a paltry crowd, apparently, hmm. um, because... Nobody knew who the hell Nelson was. He <laughs> right. was a literally a last second replacement. Right. Um, and when you yeah, say just, literally last second. Well, not you're, literally. You're, mis- you're misusing you're right. literally. I am mis. <laughs> and that's normally something that irritates the hell out of me. So you are. That is correct. But um, but what is, was he literally like? The last week. Last week. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It was yes. a very very uh, very late replacement. N- barely anybody outside he was like the commonwealth featherweight champion and apart from that nobody knew at all i think was expecting everyone was expecting a pretty easy win for sanchez uh and uh, sanchez dropped him twice i think en route to the the final stoppage but still nelson gave him a really good tough fight the rest of the way and what a great champion azuma nelson turned out to be himself of course and and, what a, and is, what a great champion of the fight game I turned out to be. Well, I tell you, now all of a sudden <laughs> the pressure's on here, actually, yes. to, you know, but... Um, but if you think I'm going to return the favor by giving you too much information in your first clue next time, you are wrong. Well, I'm going back to this fight happened in a ring for my first clue. <laughs> I'll still nail it. I'm locked in right now. <laughs> but the sorry, you were going to say something else about it. Yeah, the sad announcer. thing is, as good as we got to see how Sanchez was, you, it's just sad. I, one wonders how great he would have been. I, I wish I'd been interested in boxing at that point. Right. Like I, I, I only ever knew about him after he had died. And um, 
Yeah, what? It, it, and it's amazing to think if he'd lived, he'd still only just be in his early 60s now. It's amazing. Right. So it, it, it opens up a fascinating thought experiment of which fighters who turned out to be okay would we have thought were all-time greats if they had happened to die at age 23? Because because oh, yeah. there there is like oh uh, yeah I guess I guess maybe I just introduced a, a, a future <laughs> top, top five, five. list yeah. but yeah. Uh, so so we won't go too deep discussing it but the, <laughs> but like not that I'm doubting that Sanchez was headed for for greatness or that he only got in the Hall of Fame because he died before he could uh, you know have a burnout quickly or whatever I'm not suggesting that at all but there are a lot of fighters who you thought at that age were yeah. were going to be really special and uh, and then turned out not to be quite so special. Well, there's the, you know, there's the famous one, and we've talked about the quote that I keep getting wrong, but you know about um, after Tyson beats Binks in a round. Right. Um, the, yeah, it was, I forget who wrote it, um, but uh, that had he, had Tyson slipped falling down the steps, exiting the ring and bumped his head <laughs> and, and never recovered and fought again, we would, it would be Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson as the three yeah. greatest heavyweights ever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. All right. Well, there you go. Well done. All right. Bloody hell. Thank okay. you. Yes. Red hot. <laughs> All right. Let's turn to this week's news. Uh, there are two big stories to cover, and we've put them together in one news item. It's been a strong year for the sport so far, and it promises to be stronger still with the likes of Davis Garcia ahead. But this past week saw two pieces of bad news about fights we were looking forward to. One of them delayed a bit and the other one falling apart after it seemed it was close. And Hard to say if or when it will unfall apart. Uh, in the former case, Naoya, in a way, suffered an injury in training, a dislocated knuckle, causing the postponement of his scheduled battle with 122-pound titleist Stephen Fulton, which had been slated for May 7th in Tokyo. That fight will be rescheduled, possibly for July. Um, there is far less certainty around if or when the all-the-marbles heavyweight bout between Tyson Fury and Alexander Usyk will happen. However, Having acceded to a number of Fury's demands, including location and purse split, Usyk has apparently balked at the offered terms surrounding a potential rematch, with manager Egis Klimas and promoter Alex Krasiuk announcing that their fighter had pulled the plug and will now look to make his mandatory defense against another Brit, Daniel Dubois. Uh, Fury promptly posted a social media rant in which he insulted Usyk in his trademark style at length <laughs> and accused him of being a coward and not wanting the fight. Kieran, who's to blame here, and and do you think we'll ever see Fury Usyk? And any thoughts on in a way Fulton being delayed? Um, take the second one first. It's it's unfortunate, but it, it doesn't sound as if, like you said, it doesn't sound as if it's going to be delayed uh, too long. Um, I, if I dislocated a knuckle, I feel like I'd be bedridden and in a cast for a year <laughs> or something. But these guys are like, ah, what the hell? You know, give me a couple of weeks and I'll be right. fine. Um. Ah, so Fury Usyk, I, I kind of hate to say it, but I, f I have a little bit of a feeling of a pox on both their houses here. Mm. Um, first of all, it's important to acknowledge, right? A professional price, price fighter is entitled to try and procure the maximum amount of money that he or she can for a fight. They're going to do something incredibly dangerous. Higher the risk, the higher reward. And if they don't think that the reward is good enough, then they don't have to fight. Um, that said, price fighting is a compound word, and the important part of it is fighting. Mm. I have no idea about the behind-the-scenes details, but here's what I think happened. They hoped to have the fight in Saudi Arabia with all the money that would bring. Then when that deal collapsed because the site wasn't ready and the venue switched to the UK, Fury suddenly started thinking, I just filled a stadium to slaughter Derek Chisora for the third time, and he's my mate. Um, 
I don't really fancy facing this guy when apparently I can earn a fortune against anyone. Um, so if it's in the UK, I'll just make a whole bunch of outrageous demands. And then Usyk called his bluff. Yeah. Um, but then I guess, you know, Usyk perhaps and his team perhaps figured there would then be some give the other way um, regarding some other elements of the, of the contract, including specifically rematch clauses, especially if he won the first fight. And that wasn't um, Team Fury reason that even if he lost the first fight, if the rematch is in the UK, he'd still be the bigger draw. So he wasn't going to give make any concessions there, really. And then I think such is Fury's personality, his changing of terms and conditions on a whim, his unpredictability. Team Music just didn't trust him at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, look, I hate rematch clauses, as we've talked about. Uh, and the notion that this fight should fall through because of the terms surrounding a meet rematch that might happen if Usyk wins and if the rematch is in Britain. I mean, there's just so many ifs and, yeah. uh, and conditions there that it's just the absurdity of boxing writ large. Uh, I do, though, get why Usyk and his team feel like they probably need to lock everything down and try to get as favorable terms for themselves as possible, because this first fight is going to be in England. They may feel that the odds are therefore stacked against them, even to begin with. Add to that the fact that they think Fury is untrustworthy, and the net result is that boxing fans lose. Do I think the fight will eventually happen? I don't know, largely because Fury is such an unpredictable guy. Um, I... You know, there is precedent for major heavyweight unification bouts not taking place. Um, This is the second time in a couple of years now that Fury has managed to demand that conditions be met and and then a fight not get done. So I I, I don't know. I I feel like it probably has to be. Uh, If Usyk fights Daniel Dubois, he'll be somewhat disappointed in his purse relative to what he would have even gotten for the short end of the stick here. And I also conversely think that people are going to start tiring of Tyson Fury's act. And if we get, you know, Derek Chisora four, <laughs> uh, <laughs> or even Joe Joyce, you know, I, it, it, it won't be the same. This fight has to get made somehow or another. Maybe it's going to take for it to be on neutral ground. Maybe the Saudi thing's mm-hmm. got to go. Much as we, you and I both hate that. Right, right. Maybe that's going to have to be the term, the the, the, the scenario under which it gets made. Because if it's in the UK, I just wonder if it's going to happen now. Yeah, I, I think your, your theory behind why it fell apart is all logical and very good chance that that's basically what went down. I'll, I'll quickly note on, on, in a way, Fulton, that, uh, you know, it's it's not the worst thing to have it to look forward to over the summer when sometimes the yeah. boxing calendar can be slow. Maybe this is a blessing in disguise just to have to wait a little bit extra. But um, yeah, Fury Usyk, even though I was never really believing the April 29th date that it, that it was going to mm. come together quickly enough for that, I, I was optimistic that it would happen in, in June or July or whatever. And now, now I most definitely am not. Uh, sure feels like they're they're going to go their separate ways and, and we'll have to hope that after an interim fight that they come back to this. The interim fights on the table, I don't hate. I mean, Fury and Joe Joyce, I think that's solid. Sure. It's no Fury Usyk. Uh, Usyk Dubois, not bad. Um, but... Uh, yeah, whether they'll take those fights and then come back to this, we'll see. Uh, honestly, yeah, I, I hold Fury the more accountable of the mm. two. 
as you said, we don't totally know all the inner workings of the negotiations, but from what we know, Usyk gave a lot of ground, and Fury yeah. feels to me like, for reasons I don't fully understand, he wanted deep down to sabotage it and just kept finding sticking points until something mm. sabotaged it. Maybe I'm predisposed to think Fury is kind of a phony and then not trust him, whereas Usyk mm. seems like a straight shooter. Uh, but that's my read. And, and and that's about as much as I want to dive into it, because this was the subject of my latest ringside seat column. The day-to-day reporting of minutiae of fights uh, getting made, it is dreadful. It's annoying. Yeah. It does nobody who follows the sport any good. There's just yeah. so much rushing to get out there with every kernel of yes. information that it all becomes meaningless until the fight is officially announced. I know the reporters are just doing their jobs, but the, the scope of those jobs has gotten stupid in the social media uh, age. Yes. Um, yes. I, the boss man, Steven Espinoza, he has the right attitude that these fights should be negotiated in private. The yep. less anyone knows until it's done, the better. And Fury Usyk is a reminder that he's right. We'd, we'd all be better off if we never knew that this fight had almost been signed. And, uh, yeah. you know, read read my column in the latest ringside seat if you want another 1,500 words of me rambling on that topic. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I shall. Um uh, and there was a time where we didn't know until a fight was made. It might be speculated about, oh, this could be a good fight to happen. Mm-hmm. And it either did or it didn't. And we didn't care. And we didn't know fighters' purses. And we didn't care. Right. It was all about, oh, look, here's a fight. Let's freaking watch the fight. And yeah, here we as, at least as much effort and as least as many words are expended on <laughs> on this whole stuff as, yeah, as on the actual fight every themselves. little detail that they're neg- their the current sticking point is that he wants this detail in his rematch clause and it, yeah. it's just if i mean i get it as from the reporter's perspective if that's what somebody is paying you to report go ahead and report sure. it but uh yeah i'll uh, one more spoiler for the column i i went so far as to uh re- recall the days of working in the ring office when you would find out a fight was happening because you would hear the fax machine making the fax machine oh, noise yeah. and you'd go and check, oh, check, see what just came in, having no idea. And, oh, main event sent us a fax that Gaddy versus whoever is signed for such and such a date on such and such a channel. And yeah, that that was how it used to happen. And maybe you kind of knew it was in the works. Maybe you had no idea. But, uh, yeah, I kind of I kind of long for those days. <laughs> Yeah, and without taking away yet more of your column, I, I suspect <laughs> the fights were easier to get made because I get, well, the negotiations I guess one, weren't happening out in the public. And, and yeah, and, you may, know, and, maybe, and, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, history is littered with like at any point in history, you look and you'll find people complaining that the fights they want to see aren't happening. Sure. So so that that I'm not sure whether it's actually gotten worse or not, but certainly having to follow along with it has gotten a lot more unpleasant. Yes. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Let's conclude with this week's top five challenge. Um, And it is my turn to challenge you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bob Santos appearing this week adds to our record of having great interviews with great coaches on the podcast. Uh, Off the top of my head, Joe Goosen, Derek James, Ronnie Shields, Calvin Ford, and of course, Breadman, among many others. Um, So I wanted to throw a trainer-related challenge at you. uh, And it's this. Give me your top five in-fight trainer moments. So that can be like a dramatic stoppage. It could be a protest, fisticuffs with the other trainer. Mm. Um, Most importantly, inspiring speeches, 
motivating, you know, in that one minute between rounds, all that kind of stuff. Dig deep into the memory banks and see what you can think of. Do you think there's enough there for a top five list? Do we have an, enough obvious examples? I, I think so. I've been pondering it for 45 seconds or so now, and uh, <laughs> at least three or four good ones have already popped into mind, so I shouldn't have too, too much trouble getting to five. Yeah, there's there's some real good ones that, uh, that I'm thinking of. And uh, wow, uh, now, now the big question that everyone's wondering is, Will pour some water on his balls make the list? <laughs> You'll have to tune in next week to find out. Once again, the kind of stuff that you do not get on any other boxing podcast. Top five moments in the corners where balls were discussed. That's uh, that's how granular we'll get there eventually. You go. That's your, that's your next. Is <laughs> <laughs> as we gradually run out of topics. <laughs> but this is a fun one. I'm I'm looking forward to this. This will be a good one. All right. Okay. All right. That will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks again to Bob Santos for joining us. Uh, Join us next week. We look back on Joshua Franklin and Ramirez Dogbe, and we look ahead to a Showtime double feature of Friday Showbox and the Saturday return of Sebastian Fondora, as well as outings for Shakur Stevenson, Bam Rodriguez, and Murajan Akhmedalia. Busy week next week. All right. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. 